This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. From Christianity Today, I'm Sandra McCracken, and this is The Slow Work. We are all creatives at heart, no matter what career or calling we find ourselves in. Inspiration can happen in a second, but the work of creativity only happens when we're patient enough to stay with it. It takes grit to see it through. I love hearing what this looks like for musicians, poets, painters, writers, and advocates. So I've been talking to them, and I want to invite you to listen in. As you do, I hope that your faith story gets tangled up in your work story and that your creative mind would be renewed by hope and possibility. Thanks for listening. Today's guest was made for the slow work. Justin McRoberts is an author, coach, speaker, and songwriter living in the Bay Area. For over 20 years, he has helped artists, ministers, and entrepreneurs find their way. Justin is the author of six books, including his most recent release, Sacred Strides. When he's not writing, speaking, or coaching, you can find him as the host of the At Sea podcast. Enjoy this conversation with Sandra and Justin as they unpack belovedness in the context of work and identity. And be sure to pick up Justin's book to guide you on the journey. We will link it in the show notes. Enjoy this conversation. Hey Justin, it is so good to see you. It's been uh, it's been a minute. It's been a minute, and it was a taco shop. A minute at the taco shop. It was. That's right. So yeah, I think you've written like several books since that. You are a <laughs> prolific creative who wears a lot of can't hats. stop on stuff. Um, I know. I love it, and I'm excited to dive in. I have a few questions that I love to ask you, but I always feel like you're there are things brewing with you that you're always thinking about new things, and so excited sure. to hear where you are with this new yeah. book and with what's been on your mind lately. I'm thrilled to talk about it. Sacred Strides, The Journey to Belovedness and Work and Rest. I love it immediately because it just it is a place where I feel like we that is so quickly relatable. And it reminds me of Henry Nouwen, who's one of my favorites. Yeah. The correlation between work and rest and then this word belovedness. So, I mean, do you, as far as all the jobs that you're doing, so you've got music, speaking, writing, coaching, spiritual direction or like spiritual guiding. Are these, when I see all that on the page, I just wonder like, how do you hold all these different parts of your work in your creative life? I work in seasons. So some seasons are heavy on one emphasis and some seasons are heavy in another emphasis. And part of what I've learned to do and will continue to learn to do, it's the old Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant notion of like, you kind of let the game come to you and you don't try to force Mm -hmm. it. Right now is book season. So I finished a book and I'm doing book promotional stuff and likely summer will be like project and coaching season. And I just let what comes show up instead of trying to make something happen season in, season out. Like I I know that fall looks a certain way, winter works a certain way, summer usually works a certain way. Usually I can plan, but then I hold it loosely. And you know, better, you know, as well, if not better than I do, like (laughs) you make your plans 
and mean it when yeah. you make them, but then hold them loosely and be okay when things change. Because as much as I want to plan, and I do, because I work better with structure, the heartbeat of art making and of good life is still paying attention. And if my mm. plans keep me from paying attention, then I'm not going to live as fully into the season as, as mm. I want to. Yeah. There's like a fluidity to it. There's something loose about letting it happen in an organic way. Tell me a little bit about like your rhythms around that when it comes to kind of pacing both prayer and liturgical habits. Do those things go hand in hand as far as how you plan or dream about what you want to do creatively? Yeah. So this wasn't a thing I decided on. This thing I've noticed is my long season creative cycles work pretty closely in conjunction with the ebb and flow of my spiritual needs and postures. Hmm. So hmm. I want to be working in the spring. Like I want to be active. And so this mm -hmm. makes a ton of sense. Lots of conversations, lots of like some travel, travel's a little bit different. Lots of doing, active doing, outpouring, less thinking and more just I'm responding. It's more reactive time in the spring. Hmm. I tend to need a lot of freedom in the summer. So it's less of a whole season and more a season of freedom in which week to week things are going to change, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. with a five-year-old and a 12-year-old. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> and both, all these things are spiritual and creative. Uh, fall tends to be more like, this is an odd way to say it, like a, like a long preparatory period where I'm, mm -hmm. I'm planning, I'm thinking, I'm not, I'm not strategizing per se, where I'm not making hardcore decisions because that happens in the winter where like in the winter, I end up saying no to a lot through the winter. So I get really clear through the winter about what I want to do, what I want, what I don't want to be doing so that in the spring I can fall right back into just being more active. And all of those things mm -hmm. work hand in hand between what my soul needs from a spiritual and mental health posture, but also what I'm doing with my life creatively. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would guess that there, it's like there's a map, there's an internal map that tells us even when the leaves don't change, there's yeah. a time for something that we need something. And I talk about that with my youngest, he's three and a half now, just a little younger than yours. And with the things that he's afraid of, or when he runs out of time and he can't do this one thing anymore, and he's really bummed out about that, or when it gets mm -hmm. dark, and for a while, just that that awareness of darkness, but then being able to tell him these cues are actually like, I mean, of course, I'm not using those words with him, but it gets dark because we need to sleep, you know. Just talking to him about the grace that is part of those rhythms that are built in that we get it, you know, we get a notice like, oh, the sun's going down. I think I need yeah. rest, which makes me think about this project that you're working on now as you begin incubating this idea for a book on rest and work and belovedness. Did you have a burnout or did you get to a point where you were feeling like you were, where you felt like you needed to slow down? I've had a few. I tend to go all in. Like I, like I tend to, like folks yeah. do say that, but I actually do. Like I'm, I'm up to my neck in whatever I'm doing. <laughs> Um, a lot of energy for yeah. sure. Yeah. And so there have been multiple times in my life when I've experienced things like burnout and they've been gifts in context in some ways like depression is that's my soul mm. telling me stories about what's going on around me that I'm not paying attention to. Burnout has worked the same way 
where in the moment mm -hmm. and for the short season, sometimes the short to medium length season, shortly afterwards, there's some <laughs> shame and some severe disappointment. But in the long yeah. run, I look back and recognize this was this was my soul, my psychology saying, mm -hmm. this doesn't feel good. Let's mm -hmm. take a step back and rethink what I'm wanting to do when I work. And part of why I work as hard as I do is because I want to belong. I want to contribute. All of those are expressions of the desire to be loved. All of them. I want to contribute mm -hmm. to the world because I want to love the world. I also want to feel loved when I put work in the world. I want to experience yeah. love. Seasons of burnout are seasons in which my soul, my psychology are screaming to me like we're not working from a place of belovedness and love and we're not receiving mm -hmm love and care the way we want to. So we need to stop. So there are a few stories, two specifically in the book about moments or seasons of what some would call burnout. And they've been important. You use the Henry Nouwen phrase, the ministry of disappointment. Does that phrase give you some language to put around how to serve out of or how to care out of this place where you feel one of your own limitations. I don't like having to say no to things because I don't want to disappoint other people. I also don't like disappointing my own plans. I like mm. to do what I say that I'm going to do. It's important for me to be able to say to myself, it's okay to say no. And I have to work through my own personal disappointment in order to say no. Part of what moves me <laughs> from one thing to the next is actually coming to the end of a season and recognizing that the thing I'm doing isn't working the way I want it to mm. anymore. Mm. And it's often been some degree of disappointment or sadness that propels me to rethink like, oh, maybe this season is over. Mm -hmm. The darkest story in the book, the hardest story in the book is like, I planted a church in my early 20s. I thought that was going to be my legacy. Pastor guy planted a church, it's my local church. It's in the town I grew up in. Yeah. Like the depth of sadness and disappointment that I experienced at the end of that season, receiving that disappointment Nouwen's whole notion of like the ministry of disappointment, disappointing other people. The person I said I was going to be for the rest of my life to you as a pastor, mm. I can't be. Oof. Yeah. Uh, but I have to be able to say that. And I have to, I have to give into disappointing other people in order to live into the fullness of my next chapter. And I have to do mm. that for myself. That sucked. Yeah. And it always does to some degree. But it is a kind of, soul level communication with oneself that I'm going to mm. disappoint you. And I have to move through that to get to the kind of clarity that I need in order to do what actually comes next for me. Hmm. I think it's such a relatable story and I appreciate you kind of giving us a teaser to it because I do think so many of us have experienced that. And then we're a little bit disoriented in the moment of, Oh, well, this thing I thought was yeah. it. And not just the thing, but me too. And you didn't have clarity in the middle of it though, right? Because inevitably there's this like fog where you're trying to figure out which end is up, you know, like which way mm -hmm. is the north at this point to find the next thing. How much time does that take? Yeah. I mean, it should take 18 months, right? <laughs> yeah. Is that a good number? 18 months? It should take 18 months. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Can you put, <laughs> yeah, can you put a stamp on that? So, <laughs> gotta put a pin yeah. it at 18 months. Um, but it's not fast, right? It's not no, a thing it's actually, that, that just is like, oh, I get this. In some ways, it lasts forever, especially as an adult. Once I've made decisions about who I am and who I want to be and what I want to be doing, yeah, the kind of investment I've made in that means that when that season is over, 
the sadness that comes with that, the disappointment, that scar, it lives forever. It's always going to be a part of my emotional metric for life. It's always going to be a part of how I evaluate my yeses and my noes. It's always going to be a part about how I evaluate the weight of relationship. There are certain wounds, uh, certain injuries, certain disappointments, certain sadnesses that will last in some way, shape, or form forever for the rest of my life. So is there a season during which I'm particularly disoriented? Hell yes. (laughs) And for me, it was Mm -hmm. like, I I don't know. I don't think I was thinking altogether very clearly or wanting to move on, move on for a good two years. But that's Mm -hmm. not prescriptive. That's just like, that's how it went for me. This was a deep sadness, an incredible disappointment, felt like a massive life failure. And I took some of my own advice and I just let that sadness have its time. This this will be my mm-hmm. dominant emotional experience for as long yeah. as it takes. And I'm not going to try to get over it. It's the thing I'm going to most think about until I'm done there. So that was probably two years. But Sacred Strides is a book that I'm putting together mostly because of my experience learning to live into and live out of my belovedness as a pastor. And this is like what, seven or mm-hmm. eight years that I started that project <laughs> like seven or eight years later. So it's still mm-hmm. defining what I do. The hallmarking answer is like, it lasts forever. The The more nuanced part of it is like, insofar as I had a season in which I was severely disoriented, once that was over, that sadness doesn't go away. It continues to help me define my life and live more mm-hmm. deeply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't find that to be a hallmark answer in the sense that this is lasting. I think it reminds me that where we experience loss, that it that it's not wasted. And that I think that happens most profoundly because we know Christ suffers, you know, and there's yes. a sense of like Christ suffering, which means all of our suffering is not meaningless. And it's also not forgotten and that he has scars. And so even though it's a a painful thing to go through for us, it seems to hold true that he is taking us somewhere in this. Yeah. And so to say like, yeah, it's, it lasts, it, it values the thing that we lost. It says that really matters, you know, and it's right that you'd be sad because this was meaningful. And Jib Dodd talks about that in his books about emotion, you know, that if something's sad, there was actually yeah. something to lose that was worth value. So I think it's a way of really affirming that. And Trying to live in the reality of the memory while grieving it and then living forward into the yep. redemptive after effects that mm-hmm. that will be the beautiful future of what you're going to make next. You mentioned the scars of Christ. Every other Sunday we'll have a bunch of uh, kids, like 12 to 14 year olds who hang oh, out in our Yeah, the Good room. News Club. Is this the, the I Club. heard you mention this somewhere. Yes. Yeah. Love and uh, just this past Sunday, we're reading through the Easter account, and we'll read through a bunch of different translations of the Bible, including the Jesus Storybook Bible. And one of the mm-hmm. kids stopped and said, wait a minute, hold on. I think there's a mistake here. Legit, she says this. She goes, I think there's a mistake here. <laughs> this one says he had a new body. But over here, it says that there were scars. So that both those things can't be true. And mm-hmm. I was like, boy, <laughs> like, wow, let's get into amazing. this. Like it was confounding to them that newness would also like that there is scarage hmm. in newness. And it yeah. is, it's a confounding truth of the resurrected body of Christ and of what resurrection and newness actually looks like is 
part of what makes mm. him recognizable to people who didn't recognize him in his newness was that he was wounded. Mm. And you could tell that he had been wounded. Mm. Uh, that's so incredibly key, uh, which yeah. is, again, part of why I write the book is I don't get over my burnouts. They mm. are part of my emotional landscape and they're part of what make me whole as a person. So I can tell that story not as a victory story that I've conquered burnout and that I've achieved a pathway and a way to no longer ever be burned out or be wounded again. No, I'm living in a woundedness. I'm living in a wholeness that includes woundedness and that that's actually part of what it looks like to live resurrected, to live new and to live beloved. Come to Jesus. He will never cast you out. Come you thirsty. Put aside your fear, your This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. So how do we know, what does it feel like to experience belovedness? How do we know the difference? I think we all know what the alienation or the other side feels like, but how do you know when that breaks in into those places of weariness? One way to say it, the negative way to say it would be, it's the absence of the anxiousness that often drives work. That either the anxiousness of proving myself or the anxiousness of paying the bills or the anxiousness of not wanting to disappoint other people. The, in the absence of that, in the context of belovedness, when I am working in and out of and towards belovedness in Christ, there is a peace I experience in my work and in myself mm -hmm. and about myself in work. I like who I am in my work. I feel whole and present to myself in my work. Similarly, in rest, I know I'm resting in a place of belovedness in the absence of guilt. And it's not so much peace as it is joy. I hmm. can lay down and stop. And what I take in is the relentless goodness of the life I have. And I experience a deep joy in the fact that I just get to be alive. I think that's a helpful frame to put on it and it's elusive it's when you get into the practice of it you're just thinking yeah. am i what's the u2 line like running to stand still with that yeah. feeling of anxiousness of always running to be in one yeah. place versus the is it eric little the chariots of fire image of just being able to just run and know the pleasure of god because you enjoy running and that's mm -hmm. that is what i think of when i think of belovedness it's just like okay this is the only thing I want to do right now. And it's yep. just focus and free and very visceral. I mean, there's like a, there's a something to that, that we are made for work. So there's whether, whatever your job is, mm -hmm. it's, it's not that it's just handed to us, but that there's actually this like confidence built in doing this thing that even before the fall, we were made to do. 
it's so much easier to describe anxiousness, to describe and mm-hmm. resonate with one another when we're talking about depression, when we're talking about worry. Like those things we can give terminologies and sort of snap into place. But when we try to describe what it looks like, feels like, what it means to live in belovedness, that's more of an archetypal experience. That's really hard to communicate in a way that someone else says, oh yes, that's exactly what it's like for me. So I do my best to tell stories through the book. This is what belovedness and rest and belovedness and work has looked like. And then prompts, because you have to practice your way into it. It ha- yeah. You have to embody it. You got to show up and be there. Yeah. You shared on your podcast when you were talking about the Good News Club that there was this correlation between words and control. I thought that was so fascinating because mm. I think as as a lover of words, I pay a lot of attention to that. I think you are gifted with how to use words, but then to realize that the words can can actually be a distraction from the thing that is actually the embodied practice of it. Even to reduce it even less than that, like if parable could be a verb, you know, if we parable ourselves into understanding what it means to follow Jesus, like it's, it is kind of simpler in that way. And we sometimes overcomplicate it with all these words that, that at least I do, that I put all these words on it. And we don't trust one another or the process the other is in. I want to make art in the world that trusts the people who are receiving it, right? I don't want to try to make things that achieve particular ends for you. I don't get to make that decision. So beginning with the prayer books and all the way through, it is what you make of it and now Sacred Strides. I'm not elusive, but I'm also not trying to back you into a corner. I want to prompt with story and with anecdote and suggestion I want to clarify the work that I think God is already beginning, working, establishing, and planning Mm -hmm. to achieve in you. I don't get to decide that for you. So making work that trusts its readers and its listeners, it's harder, but it's so much more satisfying (laughs) than than the anxiousness of trying to like make something that's going to grab hold of you by the throat and force you into a corner in which you're doing all the right things. Like, oh, I'm so Mm -hmm. done with all of that. Yeah. Yeah. If it's prescriptive, we're more likely to opt ourselves out of it, you know, but if it's inviting with a story many years ago, like I met somebody who did equine therapy and she's basically doing counseling. She does counseling, but, but with a horse or with horses in the mix. So you're not riding the horses, you're not, but talking to you about how you relate. And she spoke about the horses, how they stood how your relationship with them because they see side to side is really going to happen next to them. So if you want to lead them, you have to come beside them. I didn't grow up with horses, but that was kind of mind blowing. She said, you know, Hey, take this horse and try to walk with them to the fence. And I was like, how do you do that without using ropes or whatever? But it was coming alongside and not persuading, not, not anything like you're saying prescriptive, but to stand beside and to give nonverbal communication with this animal that you guys could walk together. Me and this horse could walk together across a field. And I think there's so much of that that we miss when we try to coerce or grasp at even our closest relationships because we're afraid it might go this way or that way, or we don't know how this is going to turn out. And I don't want you to step in that hole. And I don't, you know, (laughs) it's like, or maybe we could just walk together, you know? And I think the Lord does that 
with us. Certainly Jesus, Jesus taught a lot. Certainly there are many, many teachings and many parables. For me, the primary gift of Jesus is the withness of Christ. It is that he was Emmanuel, that I'm with you. It is the thing that makes Jesus fundamentally different <laughs> is, mm. the, can someone else have taught the same things? Certainly. But the notion that the one who holds all things together makes the decision mm. to come alongside and live life. So writing mm. stories about being a dad without a dad, which is part of the book. You know, I can't tell you how to to navigate the, those particular things if you're a single parent or if you're a parent without your parents around. I can tell you my story and hope in some way mm. I come alongside you. I can't tell you how to get to a place of belovedness where you're working you're working out of your love and your passion. I can coach as best I can, but ultimately I have to come alongside you and say, this is what it's looked like for me and hope mm. that that stirs something in you to recognize how that's actually getting played out in your life. And then you make decisions rooted in your own sense of belovedness and passion. Mm. Yeah, I so relate to that. And I think it really plays out in real life. And it's a spirituality that's not just lofty or up in the clouds the last three books you've put out, it made me want to ask you about how or if your prayer life has changed over however many years. Yeah, a lot. I'm making less noise in my own prayer life. <laughs> That's probably the best way to say it. I'm making less noise in my own prayer life. I'm more often just placing myself in a posture of receptivity. I'm mm. trusting the spirit, even and especially in silence. It's a lot of silence. Um, I'm also trusting and embracing and celebrating other people's words. Hmm. So it's it's far less me being generative and trying to make something happen in my soul, my heart, my mind, my body. The other primary shift has to do with actually being in my body as an act of prayer. I used to play at hmm. the idea of exercise as prayer and now it's act that's actually a real thing. Like mm. I recognize myself as a whole human and that having a physical body is part of my spiritual practice. Mm. So a lot of the way I experience and practice prayer along with wordlessness is physicality. So whether that's, you know, walking the labyrinth not too far from my house or a, a really long jog or some way to actually intentionally, purposefully, mindfully be in my body. Sitting still doesn't work for me because I legitimately live with ADHD. And so like if I sit still, my mind is not disciplined enough to just let me have some space. <laughs> um, <laughs> so if I'm, if I'm going to be dead silent, I tend to be moving, whether that's walking or running or something along those lines. Those are my two primary things, but they're tied yeah. together by a bit of wordlessness. That is so refreshing to hear because there are different ways. I mean, it's good to know we don't have to do this sitting still, you know, that there are ways that we can, yeah. they can be part of our rhythms of life. And I think I can be in my head a lot and I can be in my emotions a lot and I forget that I have a body. So <laughs> like, yes. it's just, it's really good to know that prayer can creep into all that. Yeah. with And with words like my, most of what I do professionally, my relationship with the world around me is mostly words oriented. I'm teaching, I'm storytelling, I'm writing, I'm blogging, I'm conversing. I want to be fundamentally different with God. I don't want to try to have a relationship mm. with God the same way I have a relationship with people who read my work 
or are on the other side of a coaching call. Like I want my relationship with God to be different. I've been talking for almost 50 years uh, and <laughs> in my relationship with God is a place like I don't, not only do I not need to say anything because I know that I'm known and loved, I don't really want to. I'd like to hear from you. I've heard a lot from me. <laughs> I know what I have to say. I want to hear from him. Come to Jesus. He will never cast you out. Come you thirsty. Put aside your fear, your doubt. With great gentleness. With great gentleness. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. In your description of all these things, you did not mention musician, uh, singing. Yeah songs where how is that what's your what's your relationship with music these days talking about strides you know I, I love music and I like playing music primarily nowadays as a way to be a dad my son plays drums and trombone and bass and is great with melodies kind of has an odd relationship with the piano don't we all and uh <laughs> I love music from that standpoint uh, it played a role and, and it had it had a season, but it was it was over as a primary thing. I enjoy music. I always have, but I'm kind of back where I was when I started, which is in my late teens, early 20s. I didn't pick up a guitar till I was almost 19 years old. I, w I gravitated towards playing music because it was a language for me that was born out of a love for other people and for the art of music and not as like, a, hey, I want to write songs and be a professional musician thing. I'm kind of back there. We're like, I love it. I love listening mm -hmm. to music. I like playing music with my son as a way to connect, but it's not a thing I identify as, as a primary vocational aspect of life. So it is interesting to look back at your journey with a church plant and the end of that season, which, you know, admittedly also has a bunch of other complexities. And then your the change in season around music was very different for you, which I guess just noting that because there are ways sometimes our heart gets bound up or wrapped up in a thing more than another thing. Mm -hmm. And I've shared this before with friends, but watching this documentary about Joni Mitchell and she was talking about how she primarily sees herself 
she calls it crop rotation where she'd move from mm-hmm. one season of painting into music and then back into these other things. Uh, I think sometimes we get committed to a thing and it's really hard to let go of. And then other things are not hard to yes. let go of. Do you think, why do you think that is? What is, what is driving that? Is that all about the heart? I don't know. I, what I, I, I don't know in general. What I know for me, I'm, I'm a relatively high responsibility person. So once I've said I'm going to do something, I, I want to keep doing it. The other part is this is because of the nature of art and the way I do art, like it's tied into who I am. I, I've said that I'm an author now. So it's, like, it's tied to my identity. This is true of a lot of artists, true of pastors as well. There's this chapter in the book I, I talk about. I use this Bluetooth uh, headset when I go jogging. But like mm-hmm. once in a while, I will go to pair my Bluetooth headset to the phone and it won't do it, which is so weird in the moment. Cause like this is, mm-hmm. we've been doing this for weeks. Like what's wrong? Yeah. And as I work through the prompts, I turn this off, turn that off, turn this back on, turn this back and it won't work. At some point, what the iOS will ask me to do is to not just disconnect, but to forget this connection. You'll see it pop up. It's a little red button says, forget this connection. <laughs> and, and at that point, usually when I look through like my, my Bluetooth connection list, there are like 14 of them. And it's just a bunch of stuff that I've connected to. Yeah. It's just, there's such a list of connections that it's holding on to that. This is like, I might connect yeah. to this. I might also connect it. I might connect to this, better hold on to that information. I get nervous that I'm going to lose something, right? I get like, I, I did this, I was connected here. And I better hold on to that information emotionally or else I'm going to lose it. I don't want to, but there really is a, like a beautiful <laughs> space making component to actually letting my soul forget that connection. So I didn't, I didn't purposefully exclude musician when I was talking to you a minute ago. Like, I just don't think of myself that. Yeah. Anymore. You forgot that connection. I forgot that connection. And it really allows me <laughs> to be very okay that I spend the overwhelming majority of my time talking to other people about their work. I'm not making records, mm-hmm. but I'm talking to like four or five people who are trying to make their first or third EP. I have emotional space to just enjoy that because I forgot mm-hmm. this other connection to some degree. So right. there's something to that as well. I hold on to those connections because I'm afraid of forgetting who I am. That keeps me from seeing who I am now. Yeah. That is such a helpful metaphor because it, it does, that's also what you're describing in some ways with the silence, the silence in prayer or in walking or running wordlessness and walking, as you say, it's like Mm -hmm. that fuels back into the words that you do say later, because there's a, there's space to connect that could not have been made if you were still connected to all the old things. We don't like endings. I mean, we just don't in our no. culture. We just avoid them at all costs. We try to hang on. Yep. But they're actually, they're so much a part of our natural design that endings for yep. now, I mean, are part of where we are. And so that if we can accept that and be able to grieve what we need to grieve and move on, we yeah. find a whole lot more fruitfulness. I think I have mistakenly been convinced or convinced myself that I get to or should build things that last. I mm. think that's I think that's a miss. I think that's an emotional philosophical miss. Mm. So while I was in the that fuzzy weird headspace you mentioned before where I was like I was mostly disoriented in sort of the the, the shambled scrambly weird space post church death. I was in Calcutta 
with a group of people and staying in a hotel where they had hired an artist to make mandalas on the floor throughout the hotel. I'm, I, I'm assuming you're a little bit familiar with the you know, mandala oh. art. It's, it's sand. And they put it together, sometimes grain by grain. Usually it's not quite grain by grain, but it's like it's sand art. And it looks like a painting if it's done well, mm. but it's, it's sand and it's on the floor. And I'm, wa- <laughs> I'm walking. It's probably 2.30 in the morning because I can't sleep. And I just step dumb-footed into this mandala. Like, a it, it, it just, and I <laughs> destroy the thing. It's just, it, it wasn't even like an oops. It was like a, oh, wow. Just sand oh, everywhere. No. I slip. It was, it was everything. It was the comedy and the tragedy. I was like, I, I step on the thing. I slip and sand. And I, as I get up, like I start to push the sand back and the artist <laughs> is there sitting on a chair. Oh, wow. And he goes, Hey, it's okay. I said, I am so sorry. And then he explains to me, and I, well, I don't give you the whole story here, but he says, I don't make them to last. I was like, mm. bro, what? <laughs> like, what's that like? <laughs> he just literally just watched me. He probably spent six mm. hours. He said he takes him between like five and 10 hours per thing to make. And he watched me mm. ruin it in all of like a second and a half with my dumb foot. And the peace he had in looking me square in the face, like, hey, I didn't build it to last. Wow. He talked about he makes right. them for the joy of the practice. He makes them so that as people walk by, they experience it in the moment and talks about the nature of it's being temporary as part of its beauty and part of what frees him to go ahead yeah. and make it. That's, it was revolutionary as a thought. Mm-hmm. I get so attached to the idea that I can build things that last that I forget I miss the opportunity to allow all of my temporary work and my temporary life to participate in that mm. which actually does last. If I'm hung up on building things that last, I miss on the eternal nature of the kingdom that I actually belong to. I get distracted yeah. by this thing and I miss the grand thing. Mm, man. I mean, there are so many places in the scripture that affirm what you're saying, that our days are like grass, that the wind sweeps over it, it's going to be gone, but the steadfast love of the Lord is what endures. His kingdom endures like these. I mean, that is where all of our stories of saying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get at this thing that's a greater eternal truth. And my life does testify to it, but only in this little small way. And yet the thing that endures is, is that he is making something so much more out of it. And we probably, we're probably conditioned, I think, even in the way we interact and try to celebrate things digitally all the time that are just kind of, we make much of things that aren't really great. Let's say it that way. And so then Mm. we miss the fact that there can be really great things that no one ever sees. And that God is perfectly content to just make things of our lives that no one ever sees. Moments, and and going back to the scars, I mean, that's true of our our pain as well, that he holds all of it and he holds these beautiful moments too. And I'm so thankful that you wrote this book. I think that there's healing in that message right now in a time when we're so fractured by small celebrations that just continue to disappoint us. And yet there's this one who's calling us to something so much more. The way I, I try to pin it towards the tail end of the book is run through this list of things that I thought were gonna last and that had passed. 
And I said that in and through my work and my rest for all of these years and through all of these seasons, God had been faithfully establishing something immovable and lasting in me, his love, belovedness. I hadn't beaten down the things that beat my father. I hadn't built a thing that would outlast all of time. I had participated in the one thing that lasts, which is the love of God that holds all things together. That is the goal. So beautiful. Thank you so much, Justin. Appreciate your words and your presence and just who you are. It's so good to see you. You too. Thank you. Be still, my soul. Be still. 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 The Slow Work is a production of Christianity Today. Executive produced by Mike Cosper. Produced by Azure Phelps. Edited and mixed by Dan Phelps. Original music by Tyler Chester. Graphic design by Chris Bennett. And I'm your host, Sandra McCracken. Thanks again for listening. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast, two clergy of different traditions. Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.